When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 35, titled Learning to Say No, wherein we discuss what linguists call the expression of negation and what we say explains those bratty little monsters. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? Splendid. Thank you. And yourself? I'm great. Wonderful. Fantastic. Wow. Wait, wait, wait. Is this Mike Volo I'm speaking to? <laughs> yeah, you heard me right. Wow. Mikey, coal-colored glasses. Uh, why are you so buoyant? Well, because we're back, and there's been this great outpouring via email and comments of affection and love for the fact that we have now started producing new episodes after a long hiatus. And I'm just very thankful to our listeners. Well, that is good news for modern man. But among the encomia was the Gospel of Luke, who was was not so delighted with our reemergence from hiatus. Well, yes and no. So Luke wrote an email about our first episode, most boring, irritating first three minutes and 35 seconds ever. Hope things return to usual standard from here, which means... He actually stopped listening at that point to the podcast to write this email. Mm. But then he comes back after, I suppose, he listened to the rest of it and says, phew, great after that, right up to 22 minutes and 25 seconds. Yeah. (laughs) That's so disappointing, Mike, for two reasons. The first reason is that the first three minutes or so in any given episode are where we show the listening world that that we're friends and that we're doing this as a labor of love and we're just kind of hanging. And it has very often very little to do with the substance of what's to follow, but it's where we're supposed to be all charming and shit. And so (laughs) it's disappointing in the first instance that he finds our charm offensive offensive. But also in that episode, you know, you were talking about how you made up these beautiful, lovely, heartfelt, sentimental songs for your baby Xander, and, uh, you know, it really, uh, it kind of choked me up. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just stunned <laughs> that it. it left him so cold. 
Yeah. Well, maybe I'll sing, I'll sing another verse. I think in the last episode, I sang the first verse to the Chicken Cacciatore song. So, Luke, if you remember, it goes, you're my chicken cacciatore, you're my veal piccata, you're my oso buco, my ricotta salata, and I love you. And I felt that that didn't sufficiently honor my full heritage, which is both Italian and Jewish. So here, Luke, is the second verse. You're my cat's deli, you're my hot pastrami, you're my matzo ball soup and my kosher salami, and I love you. Oh, 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 I love you. Are you tearing up, Bob? Or are you just hungry now? I need it. I need a minute. <laughs> now, the silence, Mike, is, yes, I am choked up, but also, I, I must say, you have outed yourself by referring to uh, to Katz's Deli and hot pastrami as a New Yorker, and I find it, frankly, a bit chauvinistic. I'm a Philadelphian, a native Philadelphian, where we serve both uh, revenge and pastrami cold. And I don't want any of our listeners to think that Lexicon Valley is institutionally a hot pastrami media property. I have to distance myself from that. It shouldn't matter to me one way or the other because I actually don't eat any of those things that I sing about because I don't eat meat. But I just can't imagine hot pastrami cold. It doesn't make any sense. All right. I think we're three minutes and 35 seconds in. So Luke's about to hit unmute. (laughs) So why don't we get to the episode? Bob, do you remember what your first word is or did, you know, your parents tell you? Uh, Yes, I I do remember because my parents took note of it. It was uh, quintessence. Hmm. I think it was probably dada. Well, you're not alone. So a few years ago, a bunch of researchers at Stanford studied 250 plus kids who had a vocabulary of somewhere between one and 10 words to figure out what the most common words were among children who were just beginning to speak. And it turns out that actually daddy is the most common among English speakers, followed closely by mommy. In that top 10, 20 are other words that you would expect, like uh-oh, bye, and hi. One word that's in the top 10, which I found surprising, is no. You find that surprising? Well, I do, because yes isn't anywhere in the top 20, but somehow no makes its way in. Yeah, you're going to be hearing quite a bit of that in the coming months and years. So uh, I'm glad we're doing this episode. Uh, (laughs) Otherwise, you're in for a shock. I just want to read to you a couple of sentences from a woman named Christine Dimroth, who's a researcher at the Max Planck Institute in the Netherlands, just to suggest to you that it's not quite as simple as you think, this idea of expressing no or negation. She said that the reason linguists have studied this for so long has to do with what she called the clash between the perplexing complexity of negation in natural languages on the one hand and the observation that children start to use negation early and apparently without major problems on the other. In the 1980s, a a researcher named Roy P. studied six children for about a year to figure out how they begin to say no. The period during which he studied them was what linguists call the single word utterance period, when babies are really just saying one word at a time. They're not putting together full phrases or sentences yet. And he discovered that there are three primary reasons, and I'm going to try to tease these out of you. I'm going to see if you can guess what these are. There are three primary reasons, primary meanings, I guess you could say, primary contexts in which children first begin to say no. Feel free to play along at home. If you have kids and you want to guess, pause the podcast and try to think back to when your children were just beginning to speak and just beginning to express no and negation. In what context did they do that? 
Well, I, you know, I have to tell you, Mike, uh, my kids were not big knowers. It's true. I mean, I, I know a lot of children for whom the condition for saying no is like the presence of oxygen. But uh, my kids were pretty, uh, pretty genial and cooperative. I mean, until they ripened. Right. Well, okay. So if you had to cast your memory back and think about the times when they did say no, what was the meaning of the no? I think it's when open your mouth and eat your strained yams or whatever, we'd hear no. Okay, so that's one. So there's okay. one. And now that's what's called rejection negation. These are, you know, and I'll paraphrase from P, these are negations with which the child rejects an event, person, object, or activity, right? And it's often with what he calls highly routinized activities. So for example, if a parent has a diaper in their hand and the child doesn't like being changed, they might yell out no. So if you said, do you want a cookie, and your child said no, that would be an example of a rejection negation. So that's one. What are the other two? Um, Mike, I'm kind of stumped. Okay, I'll give you a hint. So, for example, the child is holding a cookie in their high chair, say, and they drop it. What happened to the cookie? Well, gravity being what it is, it, it fell. Right. It fell out of the line of sight of the child. This is what's called disappearance negation. So the child can no longer see the cookie. It's gone. As Roy P. puts it, these are negatives with reference to the disappearance of something which had been present just prior to the child's utterance, but is no longer perceivable to the child. So the child might say, no, or gone, no cookie. So now there's one other pretty obvious primary meaning of no. It's one that you probably use every day. And again, I'll give you a hint. So say, for example, you're holding up an orange and you say, is this a cookie? And the child says, no. Oh, uh, well, of course, there's the, uh, the silly games I would play with my kids and say, everybody knows that the grass is purple. No, daddy, the grass isn't purple. Your father said the grass is fucking purple. <laughs> Yeah, this is what's called truth functional negation. Mm -hmm. So it functions to correct the facts and establish the truth. As P puts it, these are negatives in response to an utterance that is true or false given the facts of the situation. So it's kind of like, no, dumbass, you're wrong. Yeah, which is why I said this is one that you probably use every day. <laughs> All right, yeah, go on, go on. So let me give you some actual examples from... This guy, Roy P.'s research in the 80s when he was spending time with these children over the course of a year. In one example, very much like our cookie example, very simply, he pointed at an apple and he said, is that a biscuit? And the child said, no, apple. No, dumbass. In another example, the child was pointing to a pair of shoes that belonged to someone in her family named Ned that were a large pair of shoes, and they were next to her very small pair of shoes. So she pointed to the large ones and said, big. And the researcher said, is this big? And he pointed to her shoes. And she said, no, mine, Ned big. So again, she's correcting the facts. So what you're saying is the word no is a three-in-one wrench, and, and kids at an early age understand all three functions. But there is an order in which these three functions appear. So if you had to guess, you know, what is the order in which kids first express these three different types of negation, what would you think it is? I would say rejection is the very first. Yes, rejection is the very first. Rejection doesn't really require much cognitive development beyond 
your own moods and desires. In fact, it's often called affective negation because it's based on what you want, which is a very kind of primitive urge. So that's almost always the first type of negation that children express. What would, what would you think is the second? I would say the disappearance one is second. I, I would, in fact, I would say it's the order in which we've discussed these. And the third, the notion of correcting the record, that requires some knowledge of the world that infants don't have. So, yeah, just as we listed them, right? One, two, three. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, Roy P. says, and I'll paraphrase, he says about the truth functional negation, this meaning of negation provides the earliest verbal reflection of rudimentary logical thought. So the thinking is that these various types of negation require increasingly complex cognition. All right, let's take a short break for a word from our sponsor, Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of audio information and entertainment on the internet. You can choose now from more than 150,000 audiobooks and listen to them on whatever device you have. Audible has a special offer for Lexicon Valley listeners. When you sign up for a 30-day trial membership, you'll get one free audiobook of your choice if you visit the URL audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. The book, Bob, that I want to recommend today is called The Power of a Positive No, How to Say No and Still Get to Yes. It's by uh, William Uri, U-R-Y. It's both written and narrated by him. He is the co-founder of Harvard's Program on Negotiation. Your membership will also include a free subscription to either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. Give it a try today. Use the URL that Audible set up, audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. Now, I said that these are three primary meanings of negation. These are the ones that are most common. There are two sort of secondary meanings. So a child approaches a cookie jar where there are typically cookies, and it's empty. Does this sound like a situation that you've encountered? Yeah, I've, I've encountered that, I guess. My children have variously uh, observed the absence of something that they had come to expect. Ah, you used the so, magic word. Expectation? Yes, this is unfulfilled expectation. So I'll give you a couple of examples from the actual research that Roy P. did. He had a bag of toys that he would bring into the homes, and there was always a ball that one of the children in particular really liked to play with. One day, the ball wasn't in the bag. And she said, ball, mommy. And her mother said, I don't know where it is. And she said, no, ball. That same kid picked up a teapot lid that was somehow separated from the teapot. And she said, no teapot. Now, this doesn't necessarily have to do with an object that is not in a place where a child is expecting it to be. It could also occur when a child, say, is, you know, riding a toy bike or something like that, and something is impeding their motion. And, you know, they might say, no, go, or something like that. They're expecting something to be there or to happen that is not. So it's the language of, of disappointment or, or frustration. I suppose you could put it that way. Now, this other secondary meaning is one that I think is particularly fascinating. And I'll just tell you what it is. I'm not going to tease it out of you. This is one that Roy P. calls self-prohibition. This is when a, he says, a child approaches a previously forbidden object or begins to do something which has been prohibited in the past and then expresses a negative. Yeah, often by looking at you right in the eye, you know, while putting their fingers towards the, uh, the electrical outlet or something, 
or the straight razor, which I've carelessly left in the, in the toy box. <laughs> they put their finger on it, knowing that it is forbidden, and then, of course, go right to the uh, contraband. You've actually anticipated almost exactly what I'm about to say. So let's go back before rejection negation is even vocalized by a child. In those first months before they can even speak, what is the parent doing? Oh, is the parent correcting the child when the child puts something in his mouth that he's not supposed to or when she is doing something dangerous, and does the parent say no, no, no? <laughs> exactly. There's a, you know, a kind of parental Hippocratic oath, right? It's not first do no harm. It's more like first let no harm happen. One of the primary sort of functions of parenting at that point is prohibition. Prohibition, it turns out, plays out in a very kind of predictable pattern over the course of several months between a parent and a child. You could think of it as sort of five stages. In the first stage... You physically restrain the child. You also probably say the word no, you know, no, don't do that, or no, put that down. And you might often even shake your head as you're doing it. Yeah, and you're frequently actually taking something from them that they have in their hands while you're saying no. You know, that's daddy's crack pipe. Take it out of your mouth. Right. Eventually, though, you get kind of lazy, right? You don't want to have to run over to the child and physically restrain them every time they're doing something that's potentially dangerous. So you might just stand where you are and say no and shake your head. Now, when parents first do this, kids generally just keep doing what they're doing because they don't understand. But then that quickly leads into the third stage, which is, I think, what you were talking about, Bob, where the child will stop for a moment and then continue obstreperously, bulliingly, defiantly. Yes. Returning to the forbidden activity. Yes. It's uncanny. You've again used the magic word. So as P puts it, this typically happens with the body of the child aligned in the direction of the prohibited object or even still touching it. The child looks to the prohibitor but does not immediately withdraw. And then a cycle happens where the child will touch, say, the object. He'll get a no from the parent. The parent will get a look from the child, and then the child will touch again. Often with a demonic grin on her face. The demonic grin comes later. First is stage four, where the child now understands that they're not supposed to touch this forbidden object. Say it's a pair of glasses. I'm not going to go with the crack pipe example. And they do uh, in stage four what's often described as permission requesting. So they look to the parent first before they touch it. And then in the fifth and final stage is your sort of demonic grin, or as Pete calls it, the sneaky smile, where a child's actions superficially resemble earlier times when the prohibition was ignored out of non-understanding, except that now the child smiles at the parent in defiance and continues with the forbidden action. So this primitive rejection that they're acting out, that anticipates the, the verbal rejections, the use of the, the word no accompanied by stamping of feet that's quickly to follow? Yeah, exactly. So just to recap for a moment, Bob, there is this choreography of prohibition that occurs typically between a parent and a child during the first, say, 10 months or so, right, where it kind of leads up to this moment when the child is smiling devilishly at the parent, doing something that they know is forbidden. That's, in a sense, a kind of physical expression of rejection, and that anticipates 
when the child first starts speaking, which is very soon after that, anticipates the single word utterance period when they start to say no as a way of rejecting something that they don't want. And then as we talked about at the beginning, no plays out from there and becomes more cognitively complex. Something that P discovered, which I find really interesting, is a difference between children depending on what kind of parent they had. So, for example, one of the children that he studied had what he called a mother that was extremely constraining in her child rearing. You know, I don't, maybe nowadays we would call her a helicopter mom or something like that, someone who was very prohibitive. And he noticed that for this child, the vast majority of her no's, of her negations, were negative retorts to her mother's commands, as he put it. It was about three quarters, by the way, about three quarters of her no's were of this sort. For another child who had a mother that P described as permissive, permissive, yeah, what he said was fostering independent play, you know, who was, I guess, less constraining. It was exactly flipped. About three quarters of her no's were generated spontaneously, were self-initiated, as opposed to being in response to something that the, the parent said. Well, that's interesting on kind of nature versus nurture grounds. I would have assumed that a lot of language acquisition is developmentally hardwired, but this shows that your environment can uh, actually, at a very, very early age, influence how you use language. That's kind of interesting. And in fact, the consequence of this was that for that first child, the one who grew up in this very constrained environment, a large portion of her negations were of the rejection sort. That was about 40%. For the second child, only 7% of her negations were of the rejection kind. The vast majority were, because she was playing by herself a lot or playing with other children, were of the disappearance kind or the unfulfilled expectation one. These two children are using no in different ways in very different proportions. What that means for the you know, future welfare and happiness of the children, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. But I think it's interesting that the kind of parent you are really influences the kind of talker, the kind of speaker that your child ends up being in those very early years. Mike, what's interesting to me, even a little startling, is that of the few words that babies learn first, including daddy, mommy, and no... No, it's absolutely abstract. Uh, there's no thing you can point to that's a no. And the, the idea that an abstract concept is the, a part of proto-language for kids is just kind of astonishing. Yeah, let's go back and look at that list of the 20 or so uh, words that kids first speak in English. As you mentioned, it's a lot of physical things, daddy, mommy, dog, cat, duck, for some reason, baby is one banana, bottle. Yeah, it's almost entirely... Nouns. Nouns, right. Things, concrete objects, and then no, which you can't take a picture of. So, Mike, is it because the kids hear the parents say it so much, and because it's such a simple sound? If babies learn nouns first, for obvious reasons, because they see them and touch them, why would they have the capacity to absorb something as abstract as no, something which by definition you cannot see or touch. Is it because the parents just say the word so much? That's a good question, Bob, and it gets at you know, one of the most fundamental questions about language, this notion of whether or not these 
concepts, these ideas, say negation, for example, whether or not these are hardwired in us in a way that allows us, when we use language, to just kind of pluck them from our biology and apply them to whatever particular language we're learning, or if it's something that's learned in a way that requires us to do the wiring ourselves, in a sense. Well, I can hardly believe I'm saying this, Mike, because I didn't really think this was a subject I was dying to explore, <laughs> but maybe we should come back to it, and perhaps this time not with a, a linguist, but with someone in the fields of uh, behavioral psychology, cognitive development, evolutionary biology, someone who can uh, sort out the nature versus nurture question. Well, in fact, there's a large crossover between certain fields of linguistics and neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience. And I think, you know, finding the right person probably won't be too difficult. But I think you're right. We, we will come back to it. In the meantime, you can write to us at SlateLexiconValley at gmail.com. That's SlateLexiconValley at gmail.com. You can find all of our past episodes at Slate.com slash LexiconValley. Please subscribe to our feed in iTunes where you can leave a comment and a rating. And please follow us on Twitter. It's at LexiconValley. Uh, I want to thank all of the linguists whose research I quoted today, but especially Roy P. for that wonderful paper from the 1980s. And I want to thank Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. All right, Mike, are we done here? Nope. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Was that rejection? Was that disappearance? What no was that? Actually, it's a no that we didn't even talk about. It's not one of the primary no's. It's not one of the secondary no's. It's sort of a tertiary or quaternary no. It's a make-believe no, which, believe it or not, children do. They say no when they know that the no is not appropriate. So what you were saying was really yes. Yes. All right. Later, Gator. Pardon me. No. Excuse me. No. May I stay? Can I go? No. 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 Don't do that. No. Sit, stay, roll over. No, no, no.